Welcome to episode 168 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris, and joining me is Shane. We are two tired amateur astronomers who, who maybe look up at the stars too long at night sometimes, and uh, this podcast is anywhere else, likes going out on the stars. Yeah, so we're, we're recovering a little bit today, Shane. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and not that it, I, I don't very many people know this other than a few of the guests that we've had on the podcast, but we usually record this Sunday mornings at about 10 a.m. our time. Yeah. And uh, man, I'm glad we pushed this off until the afternoon today. I yeah. am tired. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So what were you doing? Well, um, I was camping last night. I was tent camping uh, with my brother. Um, and people should know, first off, because I know Mark Radici was on like a month or so ago talking about going camping. I, I think, and, you know, it, it looked still like what we consider summer astronomy. Here, this is not summer astronomy and summer camping weather, is it? No, no, it's a little chillier. That's for sure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but so I, I was, I'll, I'll share the story with everybody. I, I, you know, so sorry, you have to hear this again, Chris, but um, my brother uh, is who I went camping with and he is wanted to try winter camping. So I suggested before we, you know, get into the winter, uh, why don't we try some fall camping and just see how we do at you know, marginally cold temperatures compared to, you know, really, really cold temperatures that we'll have in a couple of months. Um, so yeah, we decided to go out to a local provincial park that is open 365 days of the year. Um, it's called Buffalo pound. And, uh, I guess some of the services though are reduced, like the running water pretty much in the park is turned off, you know, so it would, it would be frozen now. Yeah. Yeah. None of those buildings are heated. So so yeah, not, uh, not a good situation for them, but anyway, we went there and, uh, you know, I was, I was expecting my brother and I to have the park to ourselves, but there was actually quite a few people there. Yep. Um, there was probably, I think five other campers. Um, and then there's a number of people there during the day, just hiking and, uh, mountain biking in the Hills. Um, but, uh, you know, the, uh, I didn't really do a lot of astronomy. I did some naked eye stuff. Um, yep. I did bring binoculars, but I never really pulled those out because we had a fire going. Um, but I did take a little bit of a stroll, um, up this hill just to see, you know, what the skies were like, as well as to, uh, scout the park just for like how much lighting they had at night. Um, mm. during, during the regular operating season, you know, the kind of May till I guess end of August season here is, is our prime time for camping. Mm. Um, all of the parks are kind of lit up, you know, there's street lights, there's all sorts of lighting to help guide people at night. Um, and I was expecting to see that in this park. Um, oh. but to my great surprise and delight, they turn all the lights off in the park when it's uh, out of prime time season. Oh, that's uh, there, cool. there is one light um, that was like kind of on a, I don't know, like a, one of their main buildings, I guess. And that was it on. And, and so this park is, it's kind of like, you know, your, where, where your dark side is, Chris, it's yeah. in a valley, there's a yep. lake. Um, so where we were, there's no cottages or anything. Uh, it is just the park. So there's yeah. no lights there. Huh. The other side of the lake, there's no cottages. There was, um, I like, there's some sort of a pumping station that had a light on, yeah. but that was basically it. There was one light that, that I could see. There's a couple light domes from some towns as well as, uh, there's a potash mining facility there that has some lights on, 
but those guys were really, really good. Um, like I wasn't fully dark adapted and I was getting Meg six and a half pretty easily. I think if I was fully dark adapted, I probably would be pushing seven. Was that um, Friday night? Uh, Saturday night. Or just last night. Yeah. Oh, hold it here. What day is today? Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Saturday night. Yeah. 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 It was really nice. Um, so that was a surprise. Um, the, the sites that we were at had electricity. So, you know, if we wanted to do some, uh, cold weather observing there, uh, we certainly could, and, you know, bringing some electric blankets or, or things of that nature could help overcome some of the discomfort, uh, you know, brought about by the cold, but yeah. anyway, oh. camping was really good. Uh, not really any big observing there. Uh, I did have one short session, uh, gee, earlier in the week. I don't even know what day it was anymore. Um, but, uh, that APM 30 millimeter UFF eyepiece arrived. So I wanted to have a quick run with it in the backyard just to see how I, you know, liked it compared to the 31 millimeter Nagler and man, that APM eyepiece is amazing. Um, I, I finally understand what all of the people are raving about. And honestly, I was quite skeptical, like, um, you know, folks saying that they would sell their 31 millimeter Naglers after using it. I just didn't quite understand why. Um, but I was pretty pleased. Um, the comfort of this eyepiece is phenomenal. Like it's just so easy to use. Um, the, the field, like as described by the, you know, ultra flat field, well, it is ultra flat. Uh, it is crisp right to the edge. There's no distortion. Uh, so I should also say that I was using the 76, uh, Takahashi, uh, in testing it. Hmm. Um, what else can I say about it? Um, you know, it is extremely light compared to the Nagler. Um, the Nagler certainly does have a wider field, but I got to say it's less, it's less pronounced than what I was expecting. You know, I think it's about a half a degree wider. Yeah. It didn't like, you know, the Nagler didn't blow me away with that extra half a degree. Like, I don't think I would really miss it all that much. Yeah. Um, the, the other two things though, that stood out was the Nagler does get a little soft at the edge. Um, Mm. like, I mean like the outer one to 3%, you know, was maybe just not quite right. Um, the other thing that stood out. So I started with the Nagler and I was observing up in Perseus and, um, you know, beautiful view, lots of stars, varying magnitudes and, um, observed for probably about five to 10 minutes. Then I put in the APM and the thing that jumped out right away was the color of, uh, I think it's Sigma Persei. Okay. I think it's a red giant. And, uh, I was like, Whoa, is that a carbon star? Like Mm. I didn't notice this red star with the Nagler. Mm. And then, you know, it just popped with the APM. So I went back and forth and, uh, definitely, uh, like kind of repeated that, you know, the, that red star seemed to pop way more in the APM than it did in the Nagler. Um, so I don't know, I, you know, the jury is, is not concluded in terms of a decision yet as to, you know, my favorite wide field eyepiece, but this APM really, you know, had a good start and I'm really excited to continue, uh, using it to see how much, you know, I, I like it. And, Maybe it just becomes my main wide field eyepiece of, you know, of, of consistent usage. We'll see. Wow. Well, that's, uh, that's pretty exciting. So just, just what are the specs in that one again, Shane? Okay. Uh, so the APM is a 30 millimeter, 70 degree 
uh, eyepiece. Uh, I think it weighs about, um, I think it's about a pound or a pound and a half. Uh, whereas the Nagler, I think is like two and a half, maybe even getting close to three pounds. Um, yeah, I don't know. The eye relief I think is about 20 millimeters, but it, it was just perfect for me. Like it wasn't too much where you have some of those blackout issues, but, um, you know, it was, it was just enough to take in the entire field. Huh? Well, that's cool. Yeah. I love it so far. So, um, you know, I, yeah, I was torn when I was camping, uh, last night because I was in the back of my mind, I, you and I had not spoken, but I knew you and Mike would be out observing last night. And I really, really would have loved to have tried that eyepiece with you guys <laughs> and, uh, you know, to mess around with some different telescopes and, and that sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, we did. Quite yeah. A bit. Yeah. Yeah. So tell <laughs> me about it. I'm very curious about your session last night. Yeah, I, I took two scopes out with me. I, I typically don't do that, but um, I took the Mini Borg and the FS60 because my GTI mount is still in the shop. Hopefully get that back by the end of the month. Um, and let's see, yeah, I ran through some trials on the 32 Mass CM at 85 degree. Um, I'm not going to say it was the only piece. It was the only eyepiece I used. Might get another eyepiece and get, get to that in a second. So um, we, we end up catching the, uh, the 11 PM potash train on the way home. So that was fun. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Those trains are what? Five, six miles long. Oh yeah. They're big. They're yeah. Big. And they go about three miles an hour, I think. So <laughs> you do the math. So you had a nap before you got home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like I'm texting Mike and I'm saying, I'm saying I, I, he didn't reply either. He didn't get my message or maybe he was mad. Cause I'm like, at least it's going slow so we can get a good look at it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you know and you're just like tired and cold and like by the time you're done observing at 11 o'clock you know because we we hit it not too too far from from the site there's actually i think there's five spots we can hit the train eh? Oh, <laughs> so we have there's like a really good chance and it's 11 o'clock like it goes it goes through this area at 11 o'clock and so if you, if you want to miss it, you're really going to be on the road by about 1030 because I, I don't know the exact timing of it. And it cuts through two or three different spots at this end. And then at the other end, um, at, in by the city, it cuts through, I think, two or three spots as well. So like depending on which way you're going, um, I think there's actually up to uh, five or six different areas where, where you could end up uh, encountering such a anyway. It ended up making a late night even later. So let's see. Yeah. So took the Borg Mini, took the TAC FS60s. The Borg Mini is a two-inch F5. TAC is the 60-millimeter F6. And used Mike's 12-inch F4.9 daub with Paracore Type 2. Had some, there was some high haze, high thin haze around. And it seemed like it was kind of towards our south. So I was kind of surprised when you said it was clear because I think you're pretty much not quite due south, but you're to our south west. I guess maybe it was a little clearer in that direction. It was it was much worse towards the city. Mm, okay. Okay. So anyway, um, and let's see. Yeah. So pretty much everything below Jupiter was kind of out, more or less. But the rest of the sky was was decent. Like it was okay. I didn't do any sketching. There was times when it seemed really good, and there was times when it seemed kind of meh. And I think like when you went for your walk, that was probably one of those really good times because there were definitely moments where, where it was good. And we did a pretty long session. So we did uh, three hours actually just over. So 
Um, let's see. Um, yeah, so this Massiama 32 is somewhat new. I think it's been out for five or six years. And it's a 32 millimeter, 85 degree. And uh, it's supposed to be uh, based on the construction of an original eyepiece. I don't know if it was by Massiama or somebody else. Massiama is a Japanese producer of high quality eyepieces, well known for, I think they're, they're the ones responsible for making a lot of the really high quality plossels from uh, sort of back, back in the day, different brands like, um, I think, uh, University Optics and some others um, were, were selling the Massiemas and Terry's, I think, carried some some of the Celestrons for Massiemas and the Massiema has its own sort of branded eyepieces, um, which are lesser known here in North America, probably more well known in, in Japan from what I've been able to gather. But yeah, the, go the, ahead. the Takahashi uh, LEs are like pseudo Massiemas as well, using the same design, just, you know, yep. Takahashi made. Yeah, so I hadn't actually, I, I've looked through some of these pseudomassiamas before as, as they're known. So if people look, look up pseudomassiama, then you, you'll find a long list of all the different, um, different eyepieces that, that have been available in North America over the years. Uh, or you can go to Japan and, and go through the auction sites and try to sort of find your own. And, and Massiema does still produce eyepieces. And they've recently become somewhat available in North America from a few different sources. I got mine from uh, Agena Astro, which is, uh, one of the, one of the companies I buy from quite like Agena. Um, <laughs> I get no deals. So pe- people take, take that for what it's worth. That's sort of an unbiased, but if Agena wants to sponsor us, I'd be happy. Uh, cause I do buy quite a bit of stuff from them. <laughs> so anyway, uh, let's see. So I put it in the, uh, well, just kind of going back. Uh, so I have one of the original knockoffs from, uh, I don't know who made it, but it, it's labeled as a, uh, a wide scan three. And it was made in the late nineties, I think mid nineties. And these eyepieces made the rounds as being um, pretty okay, wide field eyepieces. And there, there was a few different camps. Some people really liked them and some people thought they were garbage. And then, you know, some people kind of kind of in, in between. And so it's like an all metal construction. I think it's like a modified Koenig. It's four or five elements and, um, you know, really performs quite poorly in fast, uh, reflectors. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'd used it actually quite a bit in a 17 and a half F 4.3 or 4.4 that we had at our club site. And that scope had a big turndown edge anyway. So we'd mask it off to 14 inches. And I think that made it like an F I don't know. I think it was like F five and a half or something. Someone can do the math and, uh, and it worked okay like that, but you know, it was just okay. And, uh, in my refractors though, at the time I was using an F seven, uh, apocrymat most of the time. And I thought it worked great in that scope. And because I now own uh, a four inch F 7.4, I thought, well, this would be a really good, uh, lighter weight eyepiece than my, um, Pentax 40. And when I, travel, I like to take the, uh, the wide scan three, cause it's a less expensive, um, eyepiece and it's lighter weight. And it gives me a slightly higher power than the 40 does. So sort of like the 40 is the ultimate low power eyepiece, but this one is a really close second. And then by taking a, a Barlow with me, I can kind of get a sort of a mid low power or slightly higher power. And then, you know, re- reduces the number of eyepieces I have to travel with when I'm, when I'm traveling to, to do some astronomy. 
So I hemmed and hawed for a number of years, whether I would get it or not. It took me six years to, to plunk down the money. And I'm really glad I did. I, I put that in the 50 millimeter F5 and um, you get a huge field of view, but I got to say it's about the same field size as the original wide scan three um, with a couple differences. And those differences I think are, are pretty significant. So the original wide scan three, I think went for like a hundred to 150, maybe $200 Canadian. And this thing runs about twice that really once you factor in shipping and duty and blah, blah, blah. So it's not an inexpensive eyepiece, but it's less than half the cost of a Nagler. I think, I think sort of all then you're, you're at like about 40% the cost of a Nagler. Um, so let's see. So when I put it in the, the first thing I notice is that I can very easily see the field stop with my eyeglasses on. So that's nice. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's something that's more difficult to do with that sort of knockoff that I'd had because the knockoff is all steel and it looked like it was, it always seemed like it was missing a part. It didn't have a rubber eye guard. It was just steel. And then you're constantly getting these little scratches on your eyeglasses or trying to prevent that. And if you came in contact with it, you um, would lose the field and the field was harder to get. You kind of had to hover and that, that exit people was just a little more difficult to capture with your eye. If you got it all lined up and it was working well, you could see the full field of view. Um, but most of the time you couldn't. So you're probably getting um, a reduction of maybe 10 or 15% in the field because it was just difficult to kind of just get that bit of field for whatever reason. I don't know. Now the Massiama, I think it's pretty much the same design. I think it's pretty much the same eyepiece, but they've put this rubber eye guard, which one helps you um, rest your eye and your eyeglasses at what I think is the perfect distance to get the full field. And then um, because they've uh, used that, you're not worried about getting scratched. So you can easily see the full field of view with this eyepiece and really take advantage um, of a pretty wide field. It's not quite as wide as I'd hoped. So running the numbers, it says I should get like 10.6 degrees of field. And I really get just barely 10. I would say it, it's losing about half a degree um, in the design compared to what it should get. So with the field stuff, they say the field stuff on it should be like 46 and a half or 47 millimeters. And I think um, I measured at the field stop on the old one as like 44 or something. And this one I would say is almost identical to that original one. There could just be a scooch difference, but kind of like what you said, maybe the, the difference is there and it's a couple degrees of apparent field, but you just, mm -hmm. it doesn't really matter. Right. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's, I don't think it's worth buying or selling an eyepiece over, over this amount of field. Um, let's see. The edge was pretty, pretty poor um, because the field is so wide and it's only got a handful of elements and the, uh, the field curvature on a 50 millimeter F5 scope is radical to say the mm -hmm. least. Mm -hmm. So, so those stars on the edge were pretty soft. So one thing I tried was I own the TS flat two, which is a field flattener of zero power by Telex telescope service. And I have a series of spacers and I played around with those. It was really cold. It was like minus three or something. And my hands were just getting too cold to mess around with them too much. And I kept adding them and adding them until I had the field flattener resting up against the, uh, the, uh, objective lens. <laughs> I, couldn't, oh, gee. I couldn't, 
I couldn't get it dialed in. It, yeah, yeah, there was there was some spacing I thought was better than others, um, but I I don't know that I saw a point where I would have said that it was overall better. There might have been one. I, I'm I'm gonna retry. I think I can probably get it dialed in, dialed in so it's a little. There was one distance I thought made it just a scooch better. So you can kind of get it so that the field is kind of like. 85% focused instead of like 70% focused, but even with it out of focus, the field is so wide. So for example, looking at Hercules, you can fit the full keystone of Hercules in like the full keystone. And that's about 10 degrees. If you look at it and yeah, the stars and the edge aren't sharp, but by the time you get to like M13, that's sharp and in focus and the rest is in focus and you can still see the stars. It's not like, they're getting blurred out of existence. So you really get a nice wide field, like scanning up, you can get all of Sagita and M27 in the field, and you can get all of Volpecula in and most of Lyra. And I mean, it's a big, big field of view. The, you can get the head of, uh, or the bowl of the little dipper in the same, like easily in the same field of view. Mm -hmm. And that is, that's pretty cool. That's a neat trick. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you sent the show notes and one thing that really stood out for me in the comments was, uh, what did Mike say about the view through the 50 millimeter? Mm. I thought that was really cool. It was, he had a great comment. So, uh, so he said that with that little telescope and that eyepiece, and to be honest, like there is a little bit of a learning curve in using that setup. Like he walked up and he's like, I can't get this to work. So I kind of had to show him. It, it focuses like a camera lens and then like you kind of have to hold the, the mount head and you kind of have to hold the telescope a certain way. And anyway, he got the hang of it after like 30 seconds, but it is kind of a very different apparatus to look through. And uh, when he was, you know, kind of straight on it and, and panning around a bit, he said, basically it's, it's like looking at a star chart of the night sky through a telescope because it's so wide. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was awesome. And, and, you know, after I read that, um, I, you know, I got thinking of the views that I've had through that 50 millimeter and it does kind of remind me of some of those like photographic star charts yeah. where the constellations are drawn in, but like, you can still see like faint puffs of some of the brighter deep sky objects in the photograph. Yeah. That's kind of like the 50 mil, like you will see a little bit of that. Um, but you're seeing such a huge part of the sky. And often like with 10 degrees, you know, you can frame an entire constellation, which is super cool. Just like, you know, it appears in a star chart. Yeah. Well, let me tell you what else this guy saw. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, like, um, I really like that Ronald Stoyan, uh, Cambridge photo photographic atlas yes, of yes. the night sky. And it, it kind of is basically like looking through, through that chart uh, except on the sky. I almost wish I could get that chart like um, reversed, like an uh, image through the refractor. Yeah, um, that would be very cool to match yeah, the view through the refractor. Or maybe get like a twisted diagonal, like a correctly oriented one. But anyway, that that's kind of getting a bit much. Um, but we, uh, we took a look. I put a filter in towards the end and we took a look at, uh, at the Pelican. Uh, mm. the, sorry, the North American and the Pelican. Mm -hmm. and, and there's also a big, like, so you, so you not only get the North American and the Pelican and Dena, but there's a big, like a Cygnus, there's part of the Cygnus star cloud is up there too. You can fit like most of that. And it's like this, I mean, it's very, very large. And then um, panning around, like we actually uh, took a look at the uh, veil 
and we were able to trace out the veil using the UHC. And it, it you know, it it's just a small portion in this humongous star field. Like it's really, really weird to look at because like you can see like those arcs and they're, they're it's very subtle, of course, mm-hmm. but um, you know, it's, it's unmistakably the veil and uh and, and it's small, like it, it's just like, everything's like miniaturized, you know, it, it's such a cool, cool way to, uh, to look at things. Like I said, looking at Hercules, the, the whole keystone at once and looking at M13 and because it's, you know, and some people might think, well, what's the point to have a pair of binoculars, but I'll tell you this kind of view with the telescope mounted up and you can, you know, you can, you can point it at an object and then let go and walk away and talk to somebody and come back and kind of re-examine it or put a filter in or change an eyepiece and put power on it. Having that kind of flexibility is really cool. And, and just, just the ability to, to pan around the Milky Way like that and, uh, and to really uh, look for long periods of time. Like with binoculars, you kind of hold them up for maybe, a, you know, I have really light binoculars, but, you know, a minute or two is kind of like max, but, but yep. this thing, you're kind of glue your eyepiece to your eyeball and, uh, and you can go for five or 10 minutes it's, it's a really neat trick. Yeah. Yeah. No, that that's super cool. And your comment about the veil is, is interesting because the veil is a pretty large object. And in a lot of telescopes, particularly reflectors, you really don't get an opportunity to frame the whole thing, usually mm-hmm. depending on your instrument. Um, so to not only have the whole thing there, but that it's just a, you know, kind of an, a smaller object in a very large field of view is, is nuts. Like I, you know, I've, <laughs> when do you see the veil like that? Like yeah. pretty much never, unless it's a, a photograph of some kind. The, the biggest challenge and, and it wasn't really that hard to see, like I found it and I wasn't really sure. And then I kind of turned it over to Mike and then he went after it and he found the same thing I was looking at. And I said, I wasn't really sure that was it because everything looks so different through it. Like you're, I'm used to looking at it through like a, um, you know, like a four inch or a 12 inch or, cause then we had looked at it through the 12 inch as well. Um, but then when you look at it through a 50 millimeter scope that has a 10 degree field of view, it, it just looks so radically different than any view you've ever had of the veil. You know, um, it, it's just, it just, you know, it's, it's tough to get your mind around you know, that this is, this is actually what you're seeing. It just looks so, so very different. So, uh, anyway, well, when, when I had both fifties running at your place, you know, a month or so ago now, um, I had a similar experience with that, the, like with the fast 50 mil, because you're just not used to seeing half of a constellation or the entire constellation. And it just was so strange to, really approach the observing in a similar way I would with binoculars, you know, that you're yeah. scanning wide swaths of the sky, but you know, there's like this mental thing that I got to get past that I'm, I'm not using binoculars. I'm using a telescope and, and it shouldn't be so weird, but it kind of is weird. <laughs> it is. And I'll, I'll tell you the other weird part is that I think it would be pretty tough. I, I don't know that I've ever really seen the veil well through like binoculars. Um, but definitely like last night with mm-hmm. the filter in, we, we saw it, we saw it quite well and, and we saw like M27 quite well. And we saw, um, you know, some other things quite well, um, as we kind of switched, uh, switched stuff around, but yeah, kind of going back to that mini Borg, it, that's pretty surprising. And with this sort of, you know, as wide a field and eyepiece as you can use in a, in a telescope that can take two inches, um, running at about eight power, 
even though it's only a 50 millimeter, um, that is just uh, an amazing combination. It, it really is. It's, mm-hmm. it's a really cool experience um, to have. I, I, it, it's just something completely different. I feel like now, in, in my, like Mike was really surprised. I bought, I brought two scopes. He said, you brought two telescopes. And I'm saying, yeah, I get these little, like I got the 60 millimeter and the, and the, and the 50. I said, they're as easy to swap out as like a big eyepiece basically. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you don't do it all night, but you can do it a couple of times during the session. And, uh, it, it's pretty, pretty cool to be able to do that. So I did switch out to the 60 eventually. And, uh, one thing that I looked at, cause, uh, uh, I do like looking at uh, IC405, which is the flaming star uh, or one of the nebulas there up in uh, up in Origa, just uh, just beside the, uh, the leaping minnow. And uh, anyway, uh, we were able to see that quite easily with the 60 millimeter um, and the and the UHC. And that that nebula is easier to see than than the veil was. I'll uh, I'll put it that way. What else do we look at? We looked at all kinds of stuff. Um, and then this, this is the thing that really blew me away. I was, I was so tickled with this. Um, Mike had his 12 inch F9 going with the Paracore two in from mm-hmm. Teleview. Mm-hmm. And he was using an old 40 millimeter, um, Mead 4,000 wide field, 68 degree, which basically gives you. Um, again, that, uh, that approximate 44 odd millimeter field sub. So it's giving you about as wide a field as possible in, in the two inch format as well. And so we put the 32 mass Sama in and honestly, we were astounded. It almost seems like you got another magnitude of brightness out of the scope. Really? That that's significant of a difference that that's incredible. I feel like I'm hesitant to say it, but yeah. But there, like him now, that's an old eyepiece that he has, and you know, with those old coatings, um, you know, and and maybe the design isn't, you know, as good. And you think about, well, it's slightly lower power, you know, and you throw that thirty-two mass CM in, and you get a slight boost in power, and you get the modern coatings, and wow, you you really you really you know, for example, like we were looking at Andromeda with it. And, you know, where you were kind of getting glimpses of like the dark lane in Andromeda, we could see detail in the spiral structure of M31 with, with, with the mass Yama. So you could actually see the main lane was, I mean, it was just, I was going to say plain as day, but and here we are observing at night. Um, but you could see like other little riffs, like very, very fine detail inside, uh, inside Andromeda. Um, we were surprised at that, you know? Well, yeah. You know, that's, that's one of the, I guess, claims to fame though, of these Masayuma eyepieces is that everybody, I think it's, you know, knows that the edges are a little soft, uh, especially in fast telescopes, but it's the on axis throughput that just seems to set them apart from everybody else. So it, here's the real show stealer. Oh. And that was that with the paracore in the edges were no longer very soft at all. Really? Hmm. It was, it was pretty good. I would say in, in that scenario with that particular telescope, I think that's the same as Bill Paoloni. 
Um, I think he was using the 12 inch f4.9 or, or some other 4.8 or 4.9 scope and, uh, and the paracore too, I, I think. And he made very positive and favorable comments with that combination with this eyepiece. And I could be wrong, but there, there could be some sort of special combination of about a 12 inch telescope at around F5 with a paracore two and that eyepiece such that, I mean, it was pretty astounding. Like it was pretty astounding. It just felt like you went from like a 12 inch to like a 14 inch telescope, just like by the snap of your fingers kind of thing. It was, it was a, a pretty amazing jump. Like there's, there's no way that anybody could miss it. You know, it wasn't subtle at all. Like I said, I'm hesitant to say it felt like a magnitude, but it felt like a magnitude. Maybe it wasn't a magnitude, but it, mm -hmm. it feels like a lot. And even, and you know, and I said to Mike, I said, in the city, when I was playing around with just the 50 and my old 30 millimeter and this new 32, I said, it was the same thing. I said, it felt like a magnitude on that scope as well. Wow. And it, and it really like in the 60, even though I didn't compare any eyepieces in the 60, just panning around, it made the 60 feel bigger. It made the 60 feel like it was closer to like a good three and a half inch telescope, maybe even a four inch. So it, it really is surprising. You know, it really is surprising how much throughput that, uh, that eyepiece has, you know, it's pretty rare. You come come across something that, that truly seems magical, you know, after observing for this long, but that eyepiece definitely does. They've definitely done something special with, with the light throughput on that eyepiece. Something is definitely unique about it for sure. Like I've never seen anything like that before. Yeah. So with that being said, are you now considering maybe some of the other ones in that lineup? No, there, there's multiple focal <laughs> lengths there. No, no, you're not. No, I don't think so. No, I've kind of got, I've kind of got my eyepieces and, and I, I just don't use too many different eyepieces. So I've got the, uh, I've got the doctor 12 and a half. And yep. I think, I think that again, that's an eyepiece that sort of is one of these, um, you know, it, it's been created to, to work in very special ways as well. You know, very wide field of view. Um, it's very flat to my eye and, um, you know, Barlow's reasonably well. And so I just use that with the Barlow's and then my, you know, it's sort of my setup is the doctor 12 and a half. Um, and then the, uh, the set of Barlow's that I have, and then, then this eyepiece. Um, and if I want to go really low and maybe get just a scooch wider field, maybe use the, the Pentax 40. Um, cause it, it sort of has its own special properties as well. Um, yeah, I don't think so. The other eyepieces in the line uh, don't have the same eye relief. Mm. So yeah, that's, yeah, that's a bit but, of a showstopper for me. Yeah. And that's, you know, now that you mentioned that, like one of the, um, like the Takahashi LE, I think the LE stands for, uh, long eye relief. Um, but like it's long eye relief, maybe compared to like a plossal, mm -hmm. <laughs> but they're not, they're not really good eye relief, uh, eye pieces when you get into some of the shorter focal lengths. Um, yeah. They're, so for people like you and me with glasses, not so good, but, but don't they make like a 80 or 90 millimeter eyepiece? I think yeah, you should get do. that one. Yeah. They make a, <laughs> they make a three inch 80 millimeter 52 degree. I think it is super expensive too. Yeah. 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 It's like three grand or something. Yeah. But, uh, but I don't know. I mean, like as far as like, and, and, you know, like this is not, this is not a super expensive eyepiece. 
Um, I think it's a really pretty eyepiece if, if that matters. I think they've done a great job with the aesthetics of the design and, uh, and it works really well for me anyway. Now, everybody's different. I'd be really curious to see what your thoughts are um, with eyeglasses and that, but actually you don't seem to have as much trouble as I do. So, um, but it would be nice to have a few people with eyeglasses kind of look through it and give their uh, feedback. Um, Mike liked it, you know, um, he was, he was also pretty surprised. I think I don't speak for him, but if, if I'm recalling correctly, it was, and we were pretty tired. Um, he seemed like he enjoyed the eyepiece as well. And, and, you know, that's one of the things is that we have all these different scopes and eyepieces. That's why it's great to observe with your friends and have different gear. Like I had this tiny little telescope set up. My kid is 12. And we looked at all kinds of different things, some of the same things through both scopes. And you can have uh, a very interesting and, and diverse experience in, in the field without having to, uh, you know, to try to go out and buy every single thing that's out there and every scope and every size, you know, you, you show up and somebody has a 50 and somebody has a four inch and somebody has a 12 and that that's a pretty good night. Yeah, it, it really is. And, uh, I'm disappointed. I missed it. Um, Mike maybe is starting to think I hate him because I <laughs> like missed the last 10 times you guys have observed together. So I yeah. really have a desire to get out with you guys. Uh, I miss it. And, and, you know, Mike, when he brings the 12 inch and then, yeah. And you and I can kind of fill in some of the other uh, apertures, you know, like yeah. a small one and a medium sized one. And it's a lot of fun when we do that. Like you said, you get to try, um, different gear, first of all, but then also just see like how uh, an eyepiece maybe performs in these different telescopes as well. Yeah. Like, and I wouldn't have any hesitation about even maybe pushing it a little further. I would, I would love to try the Paracore 2 at 4.5 for the focal ratio. And then this eyepiece in that, because although it wasn't, it wasn't perfect at, uh, at basically F5 with the Paracore, well, 4.9. I, I think probably if you if you pushed it into um, the uh, like an F5 or an F5 and a half with the Paracore, I think I think that would be pretty rivaling for for any eyepiece. It would be, I think, truly um, you know per, getting close to perfection at that point. Um, but I, I'm okay with a little bit of edge softness. You know, I don't mind panning through as long as the scope moves smooth and I can sort of focus as I bring things through the field. I don't mind doing that a little bit, you know, yeah. um, but really at F49 with the Paracore, it was, that really seemed like a pretty sweet spot, you know, and uh, you know, if, if I, yeah, if I, if I own that telescope, I would, uh, you know, chase down one of those Paracores and uh, you know, one of these eyepieces. I, I think that that is a very deadly combination. Very nice man. It's like 53 or 54 X and you got uh, about a degree and a half field. Like it's pretty wide, like enough to get, we were able to get Andromeda and the two satellite galaxies in the same field at the same time and see lots of detail in there. Um, that was like a, a, a view that, that will stick with me for a long time. It's like etched in my mind what, uh, what I saw. Um, yeah, pretty cool. Yeah, that is cool. I'm, I'm really excited to try it. Um, it's, it's been on my curious list for a long time. The reason I've stayed away from it is the reports of the soft edges. And, and, um, I'm like, I don't know if I'm more sensitive to it or if I'm just, you know, if it just drives me nuts, I'm not sure, but the, the soft edges sometimes on an eyepiece, you know, can, can really turn me off. And, and if you remember way back when I, I purchased that, um, this is during like this kind of extreme lockdown of COVID. I purchased the vintage 
30 millimeter uh, Masuyama. Um, oh, the 35. Is that what it is? Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. The 35, the 35. And um, I just, I couldn't handle how bad the edges were. And it was like a significant portion of that field of view. So like that eyepiece did not last long in my kit. Um, but like you said, it's very subjective thing. When you look through an eyepiece, everybody has different uh, yeah. expectations and tolerances. Um, but, uh, you know, the, from what you're describing of the on-axis performance and then how, you know, the, the edges clean up with certain things, like whether it's a paracore or, or even just a longer focal length telescope, I'm, yeah, I can't wait to try it. Yeah. And I kind of was pushing it a bit and I, I did that on purpose. Actually, I meant to bring out my 80 millimeter F5, but you know, it, it's, it's bad when you have so much gear lying around, you can't find a telescope and I couldn't find my 80 millimeter. It's actually up here in the office. I'm looking at it now. Um, but anyway, I, I had intended to take out that, but it was, yeah, it was kind of neat to try it, but I, I'm curious to try it in my F, uh, 7.4, because mm. I really think that at that point things will be uh, good. Um, the F six didn't clean it up as much as I'd hoped, but I, I kind of hope that by F seven or seven and a half, uh, I'm hoping that things, things are getting pretty decent. I don't mind if there's some, if there's some, um, you know, amount of edge distortion or whatever. And, and definitely like it does, like things do change throughout the field. Um, you know, there's a little bit of what the, I think they call angular magnification distortion as well. So, I mean, yeah, there, there's some distortion to it. Um, the edge, um, you know, isn't, isn't amazing at F5 uh, in a refractor anyway, uh, a very fast refractor that has a lot of field curvature inherent in it. So, you know, there is that. So those are sort of the negatives. And then the positives are um, ease of use, lightweight. I think it's the lightest weight ultra wide field that you can get. And it, uh, you know, it has this uh, very, you know, easy to look through um, porthole into space kind of effect that the old, the old wide scan type three just didn't have. And it's very, very easy to look through. And then as well, like these, uh, these, you know, miracle, you know, fairy dust coatings from, uh, from mass Siama, which, which seem to make your, your smaller telescope, uh, gain uh, some apertures. <laughs> that's, that's pretty astounding. So, you know, it, it's, it's not a perfect eyepiece, but it's got some, some amazing attributes say that. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty cool. I appreciate the review. Um, yeah. like I say, always been curious. So awesome to hear about it. Yeah. Also got a book. <laughs> okay. What book? Uh, setting up a small observatory. It's in the oh, Patrick yeah. Moore Springer series. This one's by David Ardito. I'm probably not saying that right, but anyway, it's from 2007. And so years back, not that long ago, but a few years back, I bought the sequel to that book and the sequel is called more astronomical observatories. There's like, you know, I thought, well, I'll buy the updated one because, um, there's an updated one. I'll get the most recent version of the book. These books are not at all the same, it turns out. It's not like it's an updated version. They're completely different books. And for, for what I'm looking for anyway, the original one from 2007 that set it, setting up a small observatory, um, this, this new one is, is awesome. Like, it's really good. Like, the person who, who wrote it um, talks about, like, a slide-off shed for Newtonians and talks about uh, small roll-offs, roll-off roofs for, um, you know, your pure mounted telescopes and in great detail. 
and and that's kind of what I'm what I'm looking for right now anyway. The the sequel book talks a little bit more about um some of the stuff. It's a little bit more dated like it has stuff on like planetary imaging with like a modified webcam kind of stuff that you know nobody really does anymore. So some of the other stuff in there is is also um I guess less it's more the more interesting stuff that people have done with their little observatories than actually, uh, you know, kind of setting up a small observatory and kind of some of the stuff that you need to do. So anyway, that's, that's my very quick review of, of those books. Cool. I, you know, I didn't mention to you, but, um, a couple of weeks ago, I finally acquired a version of, uh, Ruckel's, uh, Atlas of the moon. Oh yeah. And, uh, just sat one, one night when it was cloudy, I, I opened that. And then I had the, uh, Cambridge photographic Atlas of the moon, mm. um, as well as that map of the moon book that Phil was telling us mm. about and, mm. uh, was comparing the, um, uh, the, like, I guess the image of, uh, Copernicus and all three, and it was mm. just kind of neat to see the different atlases and, and the detail that was shown. But, um, anyway, uh, you know, the, the Rugal Atlas, uh, is well known to be awesome and it, you know, it definitely is. And, and if anybody can get a, a used copy of that, I definitely recommend it. Although it is, uh, it is at a, a price point. That's usually probably too high for what it really oh, is. Oh, really? Cause the, the price in that seems to vary like the stock market, it seems because there, there's been times where you've been able to get copies for like 15 or 25 bucks. And then there's been times where you need to spend, you know, 10 or 15 times that. Yeah. Yeah. The, the second edition one, I think sometimes goes for like two to $300. Uh, sometimes you can find uh, better deals on the first edition. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, if you keep a watch out, you probably can find some deals. I've got the second edition. It was, I think it was one of the first presents that my wife gave me when we got together. Oh, nice. Yeah. And it was, it had been re-released and I was really excited about it. And then she went out and bought it for me for Christmas that year. So I remember uh, flying home from, from where we were living back home to my folks place and uh yeah being able to to flip through that yeah oh that's awesome yeah i know it's pretty good did you get the new one or the old one uh i believe the one i have is the first one yeah okay yeah well the moon didn't change much no i you know i think it's pretty similar (laughs) (laughs) yeah all right Um, one thing, one thing before we sign off, cause I think we're getting close to the end here. Um, I just want to do another Patreon shout out. Uh, we have have two new Patreons, Chris, um, Matthew and Peter. Thank you very much. Uh, as always, we appreciate your support and all of the, uh, other Patreon support that we receive. Um, again, it just helps us do cost recovery on the podcast and make sure that, uh, we keep doing it because, um, there's one less barrier for us if we don't have to pay the bill. So yeah, thank you. Exactly. <laughs> yes. There's, there's a few bills. Yeah. Cause we, we do have to host, um, our, our, our website. And then also like, if you don't get a paid for pers- prescription, I'm very tired subscription to your, um, podcast hosting service. Um, it really limits you in, in how you can kind of cast the net and push out your podcast. So it kind of, it, it kind of gives people what they're expecting when they, they come to a podcast, they can subscribe and get regular, um, podcasts sent out to them. And in order to do it kind of properly, you, you do really kind of need to have the, the paid for, you know, subscription, um, which is fine, but, uh, yeah, it, it's great when we don't have to uh, kind of po- pony that up every, uh, every year when we're doing this. So yeah, it's pretty, pretty cool to be able to just, uh, 
defer those costs, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm getting tired. <laughs> yeah, me too. Coffee. The next next Patreon person is buying us coffee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so if there's somebody out there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think there's a thing you can sign up for. It's like buy me a coffee or something like that. Oh, well, then like, uh, dark, dark roast, uh, no room. <laughs> <laughs> go. Good stuff. All right, Shane, do you have anything else left to add? Nope, that's it. All right, thank you so much. And thanks everybody for listening. Thank you everyone for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com. 